2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 12. I read this week, though, of a lady on one of those sightseeing buses in Washington, D.C. As they passed the Pentagon building, the driver mentioned that it cost the taxpayers millions of dollars and that it took a year and a half to build. And this uh, little old lady piped up, well, in Peoria, we could have built the same thing for less and it would have been completed much sooner. Well, the next site on the tour was the Justice Department building. Once again, the driver said, look, it took so many millions to build this and it took about two years to complete. She said, well, in Peoria, we could have done the same thing for less money and much quicker. The tour finally came to the Washington Monument and the driver just passed by slowly without saying a word. The old woman was curious. Hey, what's that tall white building back there? The driver looked out the window, waited a minute, and then said, Search me, lady. It wasn't there yesterday. (laughs) The Corinthians could appreciate a good boast. This lady would have been in good company in the church of Corinth. If you've been with us, you know that uh, in the first letter we, we discovered that in Corinth was the site of the largest, the second largest Olympic Games, if you will, in that uh, whole known world. They were called the Isthmian Games, and people would come every two years uh, to uh, compete against one another. So the Corinthians knew all about trash talking. These guys were really good at boasting. They bragged about, we saw this in the first letter, they bragged about their worldly wisdom. They bragged about even their tolerance of sin. They bragged, probably bragged about the shiny new chariot in the church parking lot with four horsepower. These guys bragged about everything. They even bragged about their respective teachers, right? One would say, oh, I'm a disciple of Apollos. Another would say, I'm a disciple of Paul. Another, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Peter. One would say, I follow Apollos. He's a great teacher. He he speaks so well. Well, another would be like, well, I follow Peter. He walks on water. Top that. And then another would stand up and say, well, I follow Paul. He's a short, half-blind guy, a little dumpy with one big unibrow across his forehead. Wait, can I change my answer? Actually, though, Paul had a lot to brag about. I mean, if he wanted to. If you were Paul and you were picking out your tombstone, what would you have put on it? I mean, we know that Paul lived on the razor's edge of death. Everywhere he went, he's like one day away from death. He probably, you know, walked by the tombstone store there and said, hmm, what, what do I want on that thing? What would you put, if you were the Apostle Paul, what would you put on your tombstone? Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, the Apostle to the whole Gentile world. Paul, who wrote half the New Testament epistles. Paul, who brought Christianity to the whole known world. Or would you, would you just put the verses in chapter 11? Of all the stuff that you did, that you went through for Christ. Turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't know, maybe Paul considered putting this on his tombstone. Chapter 11, verse 24, he says, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. So you run out of room, you go to the back side of the tombstone, and it says, In weariness and toil, in sleepness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold 
and weakness. The Corinthians loved boasting. They really liked boasting. No doubt their ears would have perked up when they read the first five verses back in chapter 1, verse 12, the first five words of verse 12. They read this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, beginning our text, Paul says, For our boasting is this. So what's it going to be, you think? What great accomplishment, what great achievement of this spiritual giant will he boast about? Verse 12 again, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Paul says, look, if I was going to boast, if I was going to brag, and this is not the first place. Chapter 11 is basically where he says, okay, if you want me to boast, apparently these guys really wanted Paul, some of them, his, probably his supporters, really wanted him to stand up for himself and boast the way all of the Corinthians did. I think he's saying here is, look, if I was going to brag, if I was going to boast, I would call my conscience to the witness stand. You know, that part of me that sees everything I do, that sees every, hears everything I think, that part of me that is privy to every decision of my heart, he says, and my conscience under oath would tell you this, this man is simple and sincere. Now, how many of you this week said to your friends, well, I don't mean to brag, but I'm simple-minded. I'm a simpleton. Now, Paul says here, he says, if I have to brag about something, it's that I am simple. He says, we conducted ourselves in simplicity. Now, understand, it doesn't mean stupid, but it does mean uncomplicated. Paul says, I boast in this, simplicity and godly sincerity. The word sincerity there, you know the word sincere, it actually comes from the Latin word, this is interesting, which means without wax, without wax. In the ancient world, see, you would see that phrase as you walked through the, the marketplace and you, you saw a bust of Caesar, for instance, someone that some had, someone had sculpted. You would see this sign that says without wax, sin sere. See, let, let's say I'm a sculptor and I've invested like six months of my life of toil, three months pay into this piece of marble slab and I'm making the finishing touches on this this bust of Caesar. And let's say just one false move and off comes Caesar's nose. Got your nose. What do I do? If I if I'm a sculptor, I have a choice. I can I can scrap all that work, I can start over, or I can take a piece of wax and I can make a new nose. And put it on that bust. And hope that it lasts through the purchase. Which, which would be good for me and for my family, but bad for you if you're buying this bust. You buy the thing, right? And the, the first hot day in Rome, your emperor's nose is running. <laughs> down his face, onto the table. Sincere means without wax. It means what you see is what you get. There's no hidden agenda, no trickery, no flattery, no deceit. Paul says, look, this is my boast. I'm a simple man and I'm sincere. I conducted myself with simplicity and sincerity. He says, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 again, not with fleshly wisdom, 
but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. Remember, Corinth was the crossroads of trade, of philosophy, of worldliness. No doubt, these Corinthians had seen a lot of itinerant preachers coming. A lot of, um, not all of them, but some of them were probably hucksters, right? They were quick on their feet. They were quick with the turn of a phrase. They were flashy. They were self-confident. Self-confident. Contrast, though, Paul, he says, look, I didn't come with flashy fleshly wisdom i came with simple sincere grace verse 12 again for our boasting is this the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity not with fleshly wisdom but by the grace of god and more abundantly toward you the corinthians they loved fleshly wisdom now listen paul was in case you don't know paul If you've been with us, you do. But if you haven't, if you don't know Paul, he was no dummy. He's not saying that he was stupid. Paul could philosophize, hypothesize, expand the size of his vocabulary with the best of them. But he made a conscious decision to be simple. That was when he walked into Corinth the very first time. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's back a few pages. Depending on on the size of your type, it's only a few. First Corinthians chapter two, and I, brethren, Paul says, when I came to you, those in Corinth did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul made a conscious decision when he walked into Corinth. I'm only going to talk basically about Jesus and him crucified. He says, because otherwise, then your trust becomes in a man who has really great words. And when that man leaves, your trust is gone. He says, no, mine would not be in persuasive words, but in the power of God. The power of God will stay with you. A man's persuasive words will not. Paul is very, very clear. He said, here's my mission in Corinth. In particular, he says, especially to you in Corinth. Here's my mission, to keep it simple. You guys heard that acronym, right? K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. You could use that right here instead. Just change it. Keep it simple and sincere. Paul says, the thing I boast about is that I'm simple and I'm sincere. Here's an application for you. Keep it simple and sincere. Be easy to read. Mean what you say and say what you mean. Abandon flattery as a tool or clever escape clauses in your speech. And I was thinking today or this week, maybe... Maybe for some of you, it's not so much your speech, but your life is complicated. Maybe for some of you in the room, maybe God is just calling you to simplify. To simplify. Is, is your life marked like Paul's is in verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 now, verse 12, with simplicity and sincerity and grace? That's what Paul was proud of. Simple, sincere, full of God's grace. That is a beautiful thing. That's a picture of Jesus. Turn, let's come now to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, 
For we are not writing any other things to, to you than what you read or understand. Paul, Paul had to say this over, again, over and over to these guys. Again, they probably were jaded by religious hucksters. If you've ever met a real cynic, you can relate to what Paul's saying here. Like you say, good morning. And they go, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Paul says, when I wrote these words that I plan to come to see you, it's because I planned to come to see you. Paul says, there's no Da Vinci code in this letter of mine. Okay? There's no hidden, mysterious meaning. Verse 13 again, For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part. Let me translate for that for you. In other words, I think Paul's saying, look, some of you already get this about me. Some of you have yet to get this about me. But I trust that all of you will get this about me. That we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's that word boast again. Again, I think it's because the Corinthians were all about boasting. The word is kalchema. It means to glory in something, to be proud of something. So if you invited Paul to one of these bragging parties in Corinth, he would brag of simplicity, of sincerity, and here, of the saints. He would brag about simplicity Sincerity and the saints in Corinth, because in verse 13, he's basically saying, look, I hope in the end, when it's all said and done, I hope that you will be as proud to be associated with me as I am to be associated with you, Corinthians. Wait a second. Anybody else go, what? Paul's proud to be associated with the Corinthians? Are we sure we didn't lose our place here? We actually ended up in Ephesians. No, Paul here says, I hope someday you'll be as proud to be associated with me as I am to be associated with you. Well, let's review the Corinthian uh, problems here. Division in the body, suing one another, sexual immorality, bad behavior at communion, the gifts of the Spirit all used out of whack. If I'm Paul and someone asks me, hey, aren't you the guy that founded that church in Corinth? I'd be like, "Uh, no, that was somebody else. Or, or, okay, yeah, that was me, but please keep that under your hat. Paul didn't do that. He says, I hope someday you'll be as proud to know me as I am to know you. How does that work? How, how are you able to say, I'm proud to, to be associated with you when it, you look at the Corinthians and they are just a wreck? You know how you do it? Look at the middle of verse 13. He says, now I trust you will understand even to the end. You can skip the parentheses that we are your boast as you also are ours. Here it is in the day of the Lord Jesus. See, does Paul look at the, the church in Corinth that is immoral, immature, infected by the world? Does he say, ah, look at that. That's a masterpiece. That's something I'm proud of. I don't think so. He's not proud of their behavior. So how then can he say you are my boast? You are our boast. It's because he sees their future. He says, in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's not proud to know them because of who they are currently. He's proud to know them because of who they are, who they will be in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know, when the day of the Lord Jesus comes, if you are a saint, if you have given your life to him, 
that means you will become the pure, undefiled, blood-bought bride of Christ. This is huge. Let me put it this way. There may be some folks in this room right now that you would be embarrassed to have come to your family reunion. I want you to point them out right now. No, just kidding. And you're all looking at me like, yeah, you. You guys may have heard this. To live above with the saints we love. Now that indeed will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know. That's another story. How how, how do you deal with different upbringing, different levels of maturity, different views of what's most important in life? How do you get over that? You do it like Paul did. You see them through Jesus' eyes. You see the potential in them. You see them through the lens of the future. You see them when they are standing next to Jesus, the bride of Christ. After they've been purified, you see them through the purifying trials that they're going to go through in the future. You remind yourself that in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that person will be called the bride of Christ. They're called the bride of Christ right now. They will be made worthy, though, of that title. Paul was a fisher of men. And he was proud of the catch. He never took a, a man that he caught and said, Ah, it's not big enough. It's not pretty enough. He never threw them back. He caught them and he trusted Jesus to clean them up, right? And he was proud of every single fish in the net, whether it was pretty or ugly. Here's an application for you. When was the last time you said the words, I'm proud of you? We can be confused by that word pride and think, well, I'm not sure I should say I'm proud of you. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul here said, look, I am proud to know you. Now, maybe some of your parents, you're waiting for something that you can be proud of. Paul doesn't mention in here that they did anything well. He just says, you are my boast. He says, despite everything you guys have done, I will not remove my name from among your supporters. It's basically what he's saying. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus' whole mission was to find the lost, to rescue captives, to redeem the refuse. To take us and attach his name to us. And he attaches his name to everything that we do. All the stupid stuff too. As Paul goes on now, he he gets to the issue between he and some of these Corinthians. This is all intertwined with the fact that Paul has to defend himself because some of these people were not being kind or even fair to Paul. Look at verse 15. He says, And in this confidence I intended to come to you. In other words, I was confident that you would see me not as someone that you are ashamed of, but as someone that you were proud of. So in that light, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit, he says. And verse 16, To pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Now, I don't think we have the map. It was a crazy morning this morning. But um, Paul basically, I'll try to explain it to you quickly with words. Verse 16, basically Paul was saying, look, here's the plan. My original plan was to cross over from Ephesus across the sea by boat to go to, uh, to drop in on you on Corinth, but just for a little bit, and to go up north into Macedonia so that I could come back down 
and also bless you with teaching and all the things that, that I want to, to spend time with you. There's, we don't really know what happened. We don't know why that plan didn't happen, but it didn't happen. Ray Steadman has a theory. He says that what we see here in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians is plan A, Paul's plan A, and that what we read in uh, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians was plan B. Was Paul breaking it to them that he wouldn't be able to pull it off the way he wanted? Look with me at chapter 16. It should be almost on the, on the page just to your left. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul said, verse 5, <clears throat> Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. It could be that that, that letter is Paul saying, look, it's not going to work out. Um, I wanted to do this, but I'm thinking better of it now. That's one possibility. Another total, totally different possibility, commentators say that it could have been that Paul did make that trip and it was maybe unannounced. They weren't quite ready to receive him and that it didn't go well, that they were still seething from the first letter that they got and that they didn't treat him well and that he went north to Macedonia but said, you know what, I'm not going to go back. And we're going to see uh, on Thursday, he basically said, it was, it was best that I didn't go back because I would have just made things worse. We don't know why. All we know is that it didn't work out the way Paul hoped. And his detractors seized on that. His detractors said, look, oh, I get it. Paul said he wasn't going wasn't to be here, and he was. Or he said he was going to be here, and he's not. I, I guess you just can't trust anything that the apostle Paul says. That's the kind of stuff that I'm sure they were saying. So verse 17, Paul says in his own defense, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? See, that last phrase literally means to take out a loan lightly. In other words, to take out a loan without any real concern of paying it back. It means fickle. They were accusing Paul of being fickle, of saying, yeah, I'll be there. Nah, not really. He says, or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? In other words, do I, do I make my plans like an unbeliever? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? easiest way to describe this is, have you ever met someone, if you ask them to be somewhere or do something, and they say, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. But in their mind, they didn't say it out loud, but they finished the sentence with, yeah, yeah, I'll be there when pigs fly. Or you say, <clears throat> would you please not do that? And they say, oh, no, no, I won't do it. But they do. <clears throat> you say, do you know anything about this situation? They say, uh, no, no. And what they mean is, no way I'm telling you. Paul restates their accusation. <clears throat> he says, when I planned my trip, do you really think I had my fingers crossed when I wrote you of my intentions? Am I like an unbeliever in that way? Now, let's turn the, the heat of the interrogation lamp on you. Are you like an unbeliever in that way? In, in your business or in the church or in your family with those in-laws of yours? Do you say, yeah, yeah, but you mean, no, no. Paul says it's the flesh that does that. That's the old man. That's the unbeliever that says, yeah, yeah, but really means I am. Yeah. <clears throat> it was very important to Paul that as much as possible, his words matched up with his actions. 
That's why he's writing this. It was very important that as much as possible, his words matched up with his actions. Why? Why was this so important? Look at verse 18. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Paul says the reason this is important to me is because God is faithful and I'm modeling myself after God. Paul says I model my speech after God who is faithful to his word. The Bible says that heaven and earth will pass away before any of his words will pass away. Before anything that he says he's going to do will not come to pass. Aren't you glad that God didn't cross his giant fingers when it came to your salvation? Yeah, yeah. I'll send Jesus to die for you. Psych. Aren't you glad? Christian, we are an ambassador. We are ambassadors for God in a godless world. Think about this then. If you say one thing and you do another and you call yourself a Christian, that's how people see your God with his giant fingers crossed. Verse 18 again, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. (laughs) This is getting really good here. Listen to this wonderful verse, verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. You guys, I don't know if you see it, but that is an amazing verse. That's our family memory verse for this week. This is Jesus. This says that Jesus is God's answer of yes to every promise he's ever made to you. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, who's that? God. Since God did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, if God was willing to give up his son for you, if he came through on that promise, don't you think he's good for all of his other promises? Think about it. The most difficult, excruciating promise to, fill, to fulfill was this one. Isaiah 1.18. Where it says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That was the most difficult promise to come through on, don't you think? God had made that promise in Isaiah 1.18. I can make your sins like wool, like white as snow. I can take them away. That's a hard promise. To fulfill. And even though God the Father had to see his boy on the cross, even though all of creation must have been saying, Are you sure you want to do this? God said, Yes. Amen. The word amen means let it be so. And think about it from the son's point of view. He sat in that garden, Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood from the pressure, from the weight of the world. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, let's go with that plan. He said, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus could have said no. But every promise in the Father is yes. Jesus could have said, no, I won't say amen to this. I will not say let this be. I will not let this happen. I won't do it. But when he was faced with the cup of wrath, that I deserve, he said, 
Yes. Amen. Let it be. And then the most difficult promise ever made was fulfilled on a cross outside Jerusalem. And because of that, God did not withhold his son. That means there are so many other promises that the answer is a guaranteed yes. You guys want to do something? Help you stay awake here? The word amen means yes, so be it. Let it be, right? <clears throat> I've just got four promises here. You could, you could spend a week doing this, but you probably don't want me to. So I've just got four promises here. I'm going to read them and I'm going to go, yes. And you guys say, amen, let it be. Because that's what God says about these. Ready? Philippians 4, 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It doesn't say all your want. It says all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Yes. Amen. Romans 8.28. It says God is working all things together, even the stuff you're going through, for good to those who love him. Yes. Amen. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you no matter how messed up you are right now, will be faithful to complete it. Yes. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 5. Jesus says, I, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. The word anointed there is basically Paul's talking about the assignment that God has given him in Corinth. Paul's basically in this strained relationship with the Corinthians. Paul is pointing out that God has put them together. Because he says, he who establishes us. That means to make firm, to con confirm, to make sure, to put on solid ground. Here's another application. Maybe you're on shaky ground with another believer in this body. Or with another believer at home. One of the things that Paul's pointing out here is, look to the Corinthians, look, we're stuck together. Now, he who establishes us, we are firmly established together. And the one who did it is God. It's his fault. You can take it up with him, but you are stuck with me, Paul's basically saying here. When you're really stuck together, you find a way to make it work. Don't you? Every husband, every wife says yes. If you really believe that you are stuck forever till death do us part, you will find a way to make it work if just to protect your sanity if for nothing else, right? In this day of disposable meals, disposable razors, disposable diapers, disposable income, don't let your relationships be disposable. The first sign of trouble, the first time somebody ticks you off, you can just write them off, right? I didn't, didn't bring it, but my mom sent me one of those forwards. You know, all the forwards. But this one is actually good. <laughs> I, um, it's about a guy who, who walks along the beach and he finds these, these uh, spheres of clay. And he's like, he sees there's like 50 of them. And he, he chucks like the first 15 in the water. He's like, that's cool. And then he breaks one open and there's like diamonds in it. <laughs> Oops. He's like, I, I had a thousand, you know, I've got thousands of dollars that I can still take home, but I just chucked tens of thousands of dollars into the ocean. And the point was that people are those spheres of clay, right? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's what we're talking about before. We need to see each other in the light of eternity, 
That's why Paul could be proud of these guys. He saw the jewels in them. He didn't, wasn't too obsessed about the clay, the crud. Now, verse 21. And I don't know if, you, if, you, if you're noticing it yet, but as we get into these last couple of verses, I feel like Paul has waded into some deep theological waters. <laughs> but I'd say, come in. The water is warm. This is really good stuff. Verse 21. Now he, est- he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It says he also has sealed us. You guys, this is wonderful. If I was you, I would underline it, highlight it, whatever you need to do. A seal is a mark. It's a, a, first of all, a mark of ownership. It's a brand, if you will. It's talking about when a, a shepherd would put a brand on a sheep. But even more appropriate to the Corinthians, this was the, a seal that a king would put on anything he owned. He'd have a signet ring, and that would have his special symbol. And whatever he owned, whatever belonged to him, would bear his seal. Right? He'd put that, that ring in wax or in ink or whatever he would need to do, and he would press that seal into the things that belonged to him. And that said, this is the king's, hands off. Today, this is not foreign to us, <clears throat> the presidential seal, right? It, it appears on Air Force One, on every podium that he stands behind, on the letters that he writes. It's, it's a brand. Parents, if you've ever sent your kids off to summer school, you sealed their clothes with magic marker. You wrote a, a note that basically says, this belongs to Jimmy. Keep your hands off. Now, Maybe there's someone in the room, or more than one, who struggles with your assurance of salvation. You need to know if you have given your life to him, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've turned the keys of your life over to him, it says right here, he has put his seal upon you. First Corinthians, we learned that we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belonged to Jesus. We were bought with the price, the blood of Jesus. And he's not waiting around to put his seal on you to find out if you're going to be worthy. He's not like, all right, um, I want 30 days, you know, and if the person doesn't shape up, I'm not putting my seal on it. No, as soon as you turn your life over to him, you are sealed. That's an amazing thing. He's basically saying to the devil, look, keep your hands off. This one is mine. But also... This word seal is great. It also means protection. See, the seal was the best way that a ruler could protect something under something else. For instance, the stone that was rolled away on on Resurrection Day, right? That had been sealed by Pontius Pilate. There was a, a, a wax ring put around it, and an official signet ring was pressed into it. And that basically said this, Look, do not under any circumstances, under orders from this ruler... Under penalty of death, do not open this seal. Well, you know how that turned out. Jesus broke that seal of Pilate or Caesar, whoever he was. He, he broke that very easily. But what are you going to do to Jesus? I mean, you already killed him once. But no one can break the seal of God. Do you get it? The seal means not only that he claims you, but he's also protecting you. As messed up as you are, he still claims you. He's not ashamed to claim you. And it means he protects you 
everything that the enemy tries from here on out, from the time that you are saved, everything that he tries is smoke and mirrors. He can't really get to you. The only way that the enemy can get into your life is if you open the door for him. And look, it even gets better. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. We're almost done. Who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Where guarantee is erabone. It means down payment. It's when you go to buy a piece of property, you would give a substantial down payment. They call it in the Old King James, earnest money. It basically indicates that you're earnest about buying this, that you are honestly intending to purchase it. That guarantee, that earnest money basically says, if you were to buy a piece of property, says, look, here's a small portion of what is coming. That word erabone, it's interesting, in the Greek today, it actually is the same word for engagement ring. If a Greek young man wanted to ask a, a woman to marry him, she would give him an engagement ring, but he would call it an erabone. And basically it says, look, this ring is expensive, but it's only the beginning of what I'm willing to give up for you. See, Paul is still riffing on the fact that God keeps his word. He says, look, the Holy Spirit within you, that's my engagement ring to you. He says, I'm coming for you. You're my bride. No matter how messed up you are, that Holy Spirit within you says, I'm coming for my bride. Listen, when you worship him, like today, hopefully for you, and the Spirit was moved within you, and you come to that place where it's like, I just don't have words to express my gratitude, Lord, but I thank you for being here. When that happens, that's just a tiny, teeny, tiny taste of what God has for you, his bride. Let, let's, let's spin it on its head, though. When you blow it, when you blow it and you have that tremendous desire to become right with God and you're, you're suffering and you're hurting and you're miserable, that's also the Holy Spirit, right? That's him being grieved. That is him weeping inside you. Now, here's something to think about. If you blow it, and you aren't bothered by it, I suggest you start looking around for that engagement ring. Sweep the house if you need to, to look for that engagement ring. The point, though, is that God is saying to you and me, I will keep my word. You might, might not keep your word, God says, but I will keep my word. I've put my name on you. I've sealed you. I've given you this Arabona this engagement ring, the Holy Spirit, and I will come again for you, my bride. Are you ready?